Hello everyone, welcome to Tennis with an Accent. It's Sakib and Matt, we haven't done this, uh, I don't even know uh, when was the last time we actually talked about a tournament, a big tournament is under uh, under the books, we have a new US Open champion on the men's side, Naomi Osaka has won her second US Open, so me and Matt you know, thought we should you know, restart this conversation, we've covered uh, a lot of different topics since COVID took over our lives. But now we have an actual tennis tournament to talk about. And Matt's going to weigh in that it's not your usual tournament, but I'll leave that piece to Matt. Hey, Matt, uh, let's get this show back on the road. Yeah, you know, the last time we talked, it was either very late February or early March, which was, you know, 49 years ago. So Mm. good to talk to you again. Yeah, likewise. So I know, I mean... uh, you you've been pretty uh, open and you know you are very uh, not in a wrong way but I think your opinion is strong and consistent. I've noticed that uh, since we partnered here, and you said this is not your usual tournament, but you still want to talk about the tournament because an actual tennis was played. Draws of 128 unfolded on both sides. So anyone who hasn't really paid attention to what your tweets were, just a brief. Uh, Give, give a brief description, a brief uh, caveat where you're coming from before we actually get into the to the tennis things. Yeah, so uh, there are lots of reasons for why I said from the start that this was, the U.S. Open was not a normal tennis tournament. No fans, that's one. Second, that it was played right after Cincinnati. I mean, Cincinnati played in New York, but you know it was played right after a Masters 1000 slash Premier 5 without a week in between. And, and this tournament began on Monday, August 31st, with all of us wondering if Naomi Osaka withdrawing from the quote-unquote Cincinnati final in New York against Azarenka. We wondered if that was going to hamper her preparations. Obviously, it didn't, but it nevertheless raised the point that without having that week between Cincinnati and New York this year, you know, that was unusual. And then we had all the COVID-19 restrictions and, you know, it wasn't. Uh, a, it certainly wasn't a disaster, uh, and the USTA deserves credit for being able to pull off the tournament, um, you know, with relatively few health incidents. But of course, there was a huge political and procedural firestorm, uh, you know, surrounding the consistency with which rules and principles uh, were applied to various players. So that was certainly a point of controversy. Uh, which, which put a cloud over the tournament, but you knew those kinds of complications were going to happen. So in that sense, it was also not a normal tennis tournament. And then the other big thing is, you know, the tours were off for five months or so. You know, you didn't have regular tour play for around five, six months. So that's not something we've had in tennis for a very long time. I mean, the off season is generally two months for the men, three months for the women. Um, so they had ha- about half a year now to regroup. So just nothing about this w- involved normal circumstances. And so, you know, one of my, one of the main things I'm focused on, Sakib, is when do we arrive at a point where we get a regular flow to both tours again? Because right now this isn't it. You know, you're having Rome start right after a major tournament without a break. That's not normal. So, you know, a number of top players can't play in Rome. You don't really have a an, a normal tour. And tennis is really going to be back. And I'm going to write, you know, regular daily articles about tennis when we get a regular tour back. Right now, we don't have a regular tour. 
And, you know, it's not a horrible thing. It's just a reflection of the limitations that we have here. And the final point to make on this larger notion of the U.S. Open not being a normal tennis tournament is that we need to now wait for two weeks to see how much um, Roland Garros is or isn't compromised by having the U.S. Open end just two weeks before Roland Garros begins. We need to see this process through and to see how players are affected and how much how how uh, difficult or manageable it is for them to transition from a hard court major immediately to clay without having you know the the long break that that they normally would between uh, these major tournaments. I mean you know the the shortest break between any two majors is Roland Garros to Wimbledon, and that's three weeks. And players get three weeks of warm-ups on grass. Here they're getting, you know, some might get two. Some might play Hamburg the week after Rome. But for the elite players, it's basically one week of prep in Rome. Take the next week off uh, while the lower-ranked players go to Hamburg. And then it's Roland Garros. So we need to see how the, this process unfolds. And none of it is normal. That, that normal is not a synonym for bad. But nevertheless, it isn't normal, and we shouldn't really think that we're living in a normal situation. No, uh, well said. And then I would just like to add, uh, there's a very small section of top players uh, on both uh, sides of the draw that decided, due to you know very valid reasons, not to make the trip to New York. And uh, you know Nadal, Wawrinka, Monfils, Fonini, and then Hasamona Halep, uh, to name few. Uh, to your point. Would 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 they have an advantage because they have been practicing on clay and they made their priorities pretty clear that this is the clay slam they will be making their return to tour, but then there's the other argument: uh, the Djokovic team, Sitsipas, Zverev, whoever made this trip, uh, Muguruza and Azarenka. I mean, all these people, all these players are matched up, so they have professional matches under their belt. So I don't know if there's a small uh, advantage to the folks that stayed back in Europe to just start their commencer, you know, return to tour on clay. So that's going to play out. And uh, do you have a view on that? Do you think uh, Wawrinka, Nadal and co have a slight advantage compared to Sasha team and whoever competed here? You know, generally I, I would say we don't really know because we haven't encountered this situation before. And, you know, in, in this year of the pandemic, one of the things I really am trying to stress whenever I, tweet anything in public is that it's important to, to be able to admit that you don't know when in fact you don't know. So I, I and I say this not just to t- tennis fans listening to this podcast, but also to any commentators, pundits, writers who might be listening to this. We need to have the maturity to say that we don't know when, when, when we don't know. We don't have to have a take just for the sake of having an opinion. Sometimes it's best to not have a take and to say, let's see, let's wait and find out instead of presuming that we can, you know, impose an opinion on a situation that we've never lived through before. So we really don't know on, on a broader general level. I would only say this, that team, Dominic team in particular, you know, he's probably exhausted right now, mentally uh, and physically, uh, the idea that he can pick himself up and go immediately to clay uh, and beat Nadal and or Djokovic uh, late in Roland Garros, I would say that's unlikely. But but with the, the sole exception of team, uh, 
uh, who just really has to be fried at this point. On a general larger level, we just don't know. And it's best to, to keep it that way and just see how things play out in Paris. Yeah, that's, um, that's quite the response. And uh, I'm going to steal your thunder there and steal. And actually, that's, uh, that inspired me to you know, drive this conversation now. And I really don't know how I feel about the match that went yesterday. I didn't miss a single ball. I was, you know, uh, deeply rested because, you know, we've talked at length about these two guys here uh, on our uh, podcast. You've written about them. So when the door opened because of Djokovic's default, and I've been speaking, and I'm sure you've been speaking too, I mean, uh, the inner game and the pressure. So I still don't know how I really feel about the final. I have few, you know, I have arrived at few thoughts because I was thinking what I'm going to say in this podcast. And... Uh, I'm not uh, still able to easily distinguish this as, you know, a terrible final or the worst final, like some people have said. Or I also don't want to hide that some loose tennis was played under pressure, which I do find there's a lot of humility, a lot of grace in that, because you see how human, how vulnerable these two guys were. But at the same time, I don't, I'm also not ready to evaluate them, you know, after 24 hours. Uh, I'm sure we, we can have a good conversation here. But uh, I'm definitely, you know, uh, really mixed, uh, have mixed views about what team and Zverev did yesterday. And I still think uh, if a crowd was there, some of uh, the ugliness that Tennis Twitter is calling or, you know, the bad match they played or, you know, the, the choking. I think if somebody had clapped for Zverev after 135 miles second serve ace or if team was cramping and the crowd lifted him, you know, this match would be a weird classic in its own way because, you know, there's the first man born in the 90s ended up winning a major. I'm sure you have a lot to say. So so who do you want to start with? you want to start with Sasha or you want to start with Dominic? Well, let's just start with the big picture. I mean, Sakev, you and I, are we're both in our 40s. I mean, we can, we can admit that for, for the listening audience. So we've both watched a lot of sports in our time on this planet. I, what I'm what I'm really confused by with the reaction from tennis Twitter is, wait, have you ever seen a, a dull World Cup final before? Have you ever seen a, a not very well played NBA finals before? Where is this notion coming from that a championship game or series has to be really good? Sometimes it's not. And that's that's just sports. That's just life. That's human beings being imperfect flawed, nervous, you know, just not not being used to the situation or being a little anxious. I mean, this is just part of life. So I, I, you know, okay, it wasn't an especially good match, but the idea that, oh, this is how it's going to be the next 10 years. Come on, folks. Nothing about this tournament was normal. You know, we didn't, there wasn't a crowd, as you mentioned, but let's appreciate how nervous these guys were because they finally were in a major final. They knew one of them was going to win. They knew that a big three opponent wasn't there. Of course, this was going to be very mental. Of course, this was going to be psychological. Of course, this was going to be a nerve-addled match. What, what's the surprise? And, and what's, you know, there's no shock value. This doesn't reflect poorly on either guy. They, they're not used to this. I mean, now, team had been in, a, in major finals before, but... He was against Nadal and Paris, and then against Djokovic in Australia. This was his first time against a non-big three guy. So think of it. Think of it this way, and I'm talking really to the audience more than to you, Sakib. 
you know, imagine that, you know, you've, you've had the, the girl of your dreams and like you, you grew up in the same town with her in your high school years and your college years. And, you know, you admired her from afar and you always thought, well, she's way out of my league. You know, I'm never going to be able to have a relationship with her. And then one day, you know, this is like a Hallmark Christmas movie. I know it's corny, but it's nevertheless, the analogy fits. One day, um, she comes up to you in, in a coffee shop and says, you know, wow, you know, that, that magazine article you wrote the other day, that was really impressive. And you start having a conversation. Well, you know, you might be a little tongue-tied if that happened. Or like if you had, if you had a sporting idol, you know, a cricket player or an international football player, and you run into that person on the street, you might not know what to say. You, you might fumble around and, and act a little strange. That's that U.S. Open men's final. That's what that was. Wouldn't any of us be nervous? Wouldn't any of us not know how to handle that kind of situation? It's just a normal human thing for both of those guys to have been nervous and to have produced an uneven match. So we, it's, this is not a verdict on how the next 10 years are going to go because this was the first time in one or two years Team and Zverev might play each other knowing that the big three are not as central to the picture. The psychology is going to be different then, different then, and they're going to play better tennis then. But yesterday, we should have expected something confusing. We should have expected something cluttered. We should have expected something that was odd and had all sorts of bizarre twists and turns because they're not used to this. You, 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 you do something well when you're used to a situation and you know how to deal with it. These guys didn't know how to deal with it. so. Okay, it was an it was an uneven match. Duh, of course, right? What am I missing here? So people really need to step back from this idea that oh, this is going to be the next ten years of ATP tennis. This was a one. This was one moment in time in five years when Federer's retired and Rafa is going to be thirty nine and Djokovic is going to be thirty eight. It's not going to be the same reality. So please step back from the ledge, folks. It was one moment in time. Don't forecast the next 10 years based on this. No, I think your example and the way you covered it is much more what I could have said, but you know, I would just like to add a few things. Uh, one, everything, of course, you know, the big three and you know, the support cast of Andy Murray, if you don't want to believe in a big four, and then the brilliance of Stan Wawrinka and you know, the power of one Martin Del Potro, fine, there have been matches. That's the tweet I put out when you know, the Medvedev team uh, semi-final became a reality and you retweeted it and we got few hits on that but what I'm trying to say is uh, not everything can be a comparison of body of work of three of the greatest champions but even if you look back at some of the old matches like uh, who's to say that Lendl McEnroe match uh, when Lendl came in with 0-4 uh, deficit in finals and he you know gets owned by McEnroe 6-2 6-3 in the first two sets of that 84 French Who's to say if we don't sit back and watch film that there was some ugly tennis between the two of them because nerves, you know, were part of that match. Or Andy Murray when he was serving to become the first British champion at Wimbledon, that last game was messy. Roger Federer, you know, losing, you know, his uh, his form against Tommy Haas. There's so many examples. And even if you watch some of the old matches that you think are great or classics, but what I'm trying to say, Matt, here is 
just because Federer, Wawrinka, Djokovic, Nadal, you know, their supreme talent and some of the rallies that we have lived with on match points and some of the clutch play, that doesn't mean that these guys somewhere in their career haven't played a bad match or ugly tennis. I don't know what's a big deal. I still think it was drama of its highest. Of course, my heart was going out for Zverev because you don't want anyone to lose like that. But at the same time, it would have been an equally devastating blow to team to go 0-4, especially when it was clearly the better informed man coming in. But then he also showed that he has nerves. He probably would have been better to play Djokovic or Federer in this final because then he would have known, okay, you know, I have to get them and I'll get them instead of, okay, this is my final to lose. And that's exactly what Sasha Zverev found himself against Borna Cioric and Pablo Carino Busta. We can obviously write Sasha's obituary, whatever. Okay, he's, his, his double faults are drastic. Either he's going for a flat-out 135-second serve or he's spinning in 68 into the net. Fine, but look at the positives. Even with that kind of a shortcoming, the guy almost won the U.S. Open. Yeah, of course, there was no Djokovic in the path and there was no Tsitsipas who gives him nightmares in matchups, but you can only beat someone who's in front of you. So not trying to like be you know the moral police here. Yeah, Sasha has a lot of chinks in the armor. But let's take a deep breath and look how good this guy can be. That he almost won the U.S. Open with that kind of holes in his game. I mean, that's, that's, what, that's what I'm thinking. And then his aggressive play that Mert and Andrew, some of our you know, common tennis with an analyst friend slash uh, analyst pointed out that, you know, that aggressive play was, was brilliant. And that, that is also, again, I think you can weigh on it because Sasha clearly knew he cannot have a start like this, what he did in quarters and semis. Plus, the pressure was on team. Even Sasha knew. Team's a man to beat in this final. And maybe that eased him to, you know, play a free-flowing, aggressive set and a half. So that's what I'm trying to say. I mean, yeah, you can you cannot hide behind, you know, some of the atrocious misses these guys did. And you've already said that instead of, you know, repeat myself. But there were a few positives that are getting overlooked. And my sister, who's not as big a tennis fan as like you and me, she texted me in the fifth set. She said, the level is going up. These guys are playing better. And you could sense that. There were some better rallies. Sasha's defense, you know, which we all, you know, say, oh, why is he standing 25 feet behind? He was playing some good defense. He was, you know, changing direction, neutralizing team's angles, and then dictating play. How can we all miss that? That's what I'm trying to say here. Yeah, well, I mean, so there's a lot to unpack there. Um, what, one of the things is that, you know, the, the way athletes think about a match in the heat of the moment, it's going to change from based on the situation. And, you know, we learned that, you know, t- team told Austrian TV that his sluggish movement, it was not, you know, a physical injury. It was basically stress. And, you know, when you're stressed, you're not going to move very fluidly. So he did, he was very stressed in the first two sets. And what did that tell us? It told us that he was feeling the pressure of being the favorite, being expected to win. This was a lot like the Madrid 2018 final when team had beaten Rafa in Madrid in the semis. And that was the uh, afternoon semifinal, by the way. So Zverev played Shapo in the night semifinal, which was like six or seven hours later. So team beat Rafa, and he was the more rested player. Certainly, in in terms of form, he was the better player entering that match. Plus, he had seven hours extra rest. But when they got on the court, Zverev was the guy who was firing freely, and team was extremely nervous. So this match... And the first two sets reminded me a lot of that Madrid final. But then as soon as Zverev went up two sets and a break early in the third, you know, the psychology stopped being about, hey, I'm the underdog. I have nothing to lose. I'm just going to have fun. I'm going to be aggressive. 
as soon as he got you know near the finish line, all that psychology changed. It was, oh, damn, wow, I could win this tournament. I'm about to get my first major. I'm so close. And then as soon as you get into that mode, you know, you're thinking not about all the fun that you're having, taking a two-set lead over Dominic Team playing quality tennis. You're thinking about, oh, the moment, the pressure, the, the, the excitement. And you're no longer focusing on hitting a tennis ball. You're no longer focusing on your tactics. And then as for Team, he went down two sets. And then, oh, then it's just about survival. It's no longer about being the favorite and having the expectations. It's how do I survive? How do I win the next point? How do I get back into this? So that gave him, it gave team the, the determination needed to fight back. And so early in the fifth set, you know, then it kind of leveled out. Both men were just about, okay, this is a close match. I'm going to go for it. Let's see who's the better man. And then as soon as Sasha got, you know, right near the finish line again, serving for the major, you know, then, then the yips returned and then, and team felt the stress of the moment as well. And so, you know, the scoreboard and the situation will affect people differently and, and they, they create a different inner monologue. And that's really what enables us to respect the greatest of the great champions, Serena, the big three, uh, Chris Everett, Martina, Steffi, uh, and, and so on and so forth, is that, you know, they, they conquered this mountain, they climbed this mountain so many times. And you know that in order to do it as often as they did, winning 17, 18, 20, 22, 23 majors. To do it that often, you know you have to be good at quieting the voice in your mind. But you could see that voice in the minds of both Zverev and team. And speaking specifically about Zverev, Sakib, since you know this was this is mostly about Zverev at this point. Um, just the fact that he was able to serve for a first major is important, and it's a it's a really big step for him because. Now he knows what that's like. You know, you, you always guess how you're going to feel when you get to that certain kind of moment in a career. Well, now Zverev knows what that's like. I mean, he, it's no longer theory. It's an actual reality. So it's something he can look back on and he can now say, all right, the next time, now I'll know how to handle it differently on a mental level. So it's a huge step forward for him. Yes, he didn't have to beat Djokovic to get to the final, but nevertheless, he has now had this experience of serving for a major championship. He knows how close he can he has come. So it gives him a building block for the next time. And to, to translate that to team socket, if if Dominic team had not had the experience of being up two sets to one over Djokovic in Australia, do you think he comes through here? Maybe, but I think that that experience of coming very close. And, and, but missing it in Australia certainly helped him to persevere when he got down two sets because he remembered that he was on the other side of that. So he, just as Djokovic didn't quit in Australia back in January, team didn't quit here. It served him well. So, so much as team used past experiences to help him here, Zverev now has a past experience to help him in the future. Yeah, for, for definitely for his uh, sake, he bounces back and, you know, he takes the positives probably very hard to see any positives, uh, you know, in, in the aftermath uh, of this loss. But I'm sure his, he has a solid team, his family around him, and they'll turn this into a positive situation, with especially David Ferrer in his box. 
And Zverev can play on clay, so the best thing would be, again, to uh, play Hamburg. I don't know if he's still entered there. So that could be his way of tuning, you know, fine-tuning his game for, for the clay season. And, uh, and yeah, let's let's go back to team now, because you already said that match against Djokovic. Uh, and, and the trail was already there, Matt. I think we've spoken at length last year, his win in Beijing, and then uh, uh, also at the World Tour Finals beating Federer and Djokovic uh, in the same week. So, and, and the Indian well. So, you know, he was not a clay court specialist. That that tag has been, you know, dealt with a long time ago, but still, you know, some, some of the big names in the game address him as that. And we are not to, I think, nitpick uh, that figure. But I think uh, I even was looking, uh, going into the semifinal, that he's won 31 or 32 matches going back to last year's US Open when he lost in the first round, when he wasn't physically well. I think he had some sort of a flu or a virus, which we found out later on. So he's not a guy like who's dominating the hard courts, but if you look at his trajectory from last year's US Open to this US Open, he's won 30-odd matches, but he's beaten a lot of quality players. You know, you have Novak in there, you have Roger in there, you have Tsitsipas in Beijing, and now you have Medvedev, which was, again, we should talk about the match of the tournament. You know, after Djokovic left, that was the other side of the half of the draw, and that's a match everybody wanted to see. So two questions rolled into one. So... Team coming in as a favorite, was he one of the guys who, if Novak was in the tournament, could he have gone the distance with him? I know it's like a little hypothetical. And then we'll talk about the Medvedev team match. Well, first question is easy. Yes. I mean, he, he took Djokovic five in Australia, where Djokovic is king. I mean, Djokovic is the greatest men's Australian Open champion in the Open era. And the uh, team was right there with a shot to win. Uh, so, so that that's an obvious answer. And then, and then, um, as for the match against Verev, I mean, or, or I mean against Medvedev, I mean, you know, Team worked his way out of difficult scoreboard situations uh, in multiple sets in that match, and that is exactly how Medvedev made his way to the final in 2019. Uh, it really was a case of Team flipping the script against Medvedev that he was when he was under the cosh, uh, he found ways to. Uh, play high performance points uh, under withering pressure in the face of strong opposition. I mean, that's how Medvedev worked his way past Stan um, in the first set of that 2019 quarterfinal. And and Medvedev then was in a very tight first set against Dimitrov. You know, who can play? Dimitrov is a former slam semifinalist. Um, Medvedev worked his way out of difficult situations throughout that 2019 run um, from August through October when he barely did anything wrong and he just rode the wave. Um, team basically turned that back in Medvedev's face in that semifinal. So when we, when we realized that, you know, there's, and there's kind of an irony here with Team and Medvedev, Team, of course, being a formidable clay court player who has found his legs and his rhythm on hard courts. Medvedev is a formidable hard court player who hasn't really yet hit his comfort zone on clay. So team is more of a multi-surface player than Medvedev is right now. Uh, Medvedev's hoping to become more of a multi-surface player, but right now he's mostly a hardcourt guy. So team really showed his evolution that he could beat Medvedev in a high-stake match on hardcourt. It it really shows the completeness of team's game on on those two surfaces obviously grass is still missing but 
you know, it, it, the fact that Med, Hardcourt is Medvedev's domain and teams still went in there and took it away from him in that semifinal, I mean, that is, that's a really important result for, you know, 2021, 2022, if Team and Medvedev meet again in an Australian Open or U.S. Open semifinal, I mean, that's going to give Team a lot of assurance that, that he can handle Medvedev on hard courts in the future. Yeah, and, and uh, talking about irony, uh, the big stat still remains the team's biggest titles are coming on hard courts now, Indian Wells and now this tournament, uh, US Open, <laughs> and he hasn't won a Masters 1000 in clay. So that is quite ironic, and nobody doubts that you know he's going to get one of those pretty soon because he's too good on clay. Uh, so yeah, I mean that 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 match again could be one of the big matches, big rivalries. That's you know that's going to develop in in front of you know all of us. And uh, and let, let's talk about the other semifinalists here, uh, Pablo Carina Busta. You know that was a big surprise entry there. And uh, of course, you know we didn't do a podcast during the fortnight, so Novak Djokovic uh, is a big reason why Pablo Carina Busta came through that match because of default. So, again, two questions rolled into one. We have to mention, you know, what happened there with Djokovic. Uh, it's kind of an old news, but still, you know, it's, it, it, it has a lot of momentum. You know, some people are still talking about it. And then uh, PCB making his second semi in, in New York. I mean, who would have seen that? Yeah, I don't think anyone saw that. And so I think with Carreño Busta, um, the, the instructive point is that when he was given an opportunity due to the Djokovic default, you know, he made good use of it. He was able to beat Shapo in a very tough, very physical five-set match. You know, he had medical attention um, in the fourth set. He got whacked. Shapo said afterward that, you know, he thought that uh, Carreño Busta had nothing left in the tank. Um, but, you know, so that was a veteran managing his resources uh, in, a, in an extended match, knowing how to navigate the ups and downs. Now, obviously, losing the two-set lead to Zverev in the, in the semifinal is going to sting. Um, but in, in many ways, that's another case of, you know, never having been there before. You know, it's hard to blame someone for failing at something when he's never experienced that situation at any previous point. So uh, just the fact that he's able to now get back to a second major semifinal, you know, that's a pretty loud refutation of, Nick Kyrgios making the idiotic comment that, you know, P PCB is not really very good on uh, away from clay. It's a very ignorant statement. Um, so, so Karina Busta can still, you know, pocket a very large paycheck for a major semifinal and realize that, you know, he wasn't a one-time wonder, that he's been able to do this twice, a very significant accomplishment. Um, and so, and, and now to Djokovic. Now, a lot of people are obviously wondering, what, what do I think about it? Well, you know, the, the main thing here is that you can, you can disapprove of Djokovic's actions and disapprove of the decision to default him and, and still realize that, you know, that, that this, this situation is not really very simple. You know, in other words, it doesn't deserve an extreme reaction. Like, they're all out to get him. Uh, you know, there there could be some organizational or institutional animus against Djokovic because of what he's doing with the PTPA. That that might in fact exist, but I don't think the decision to default him is a manifestation of that because 
there are other recent precedents uh, involving David Nalbandian, Tim Henman, uh, others, which would point to you know the fact that the ball hit the lineswoman that it would make a decision to default relatively consistent. Uh, now notice that I said relatively consistent. One thing that I'm sure a lot of Djokovic fans are upset about, and they have a right to be upset about, is that in Cincinnati, or rather the Cincinnati tournament played in New York the week before the U.S. Open began, you might recall that Alias Bedene uh, hit a ball and it hit a cameraman, not a lines person, but a cameraman, and yet Bedene was not defaulted from that match. So you look at that episode and you say, well, geez, why would Bedene not get defaulted and Djokovic would get defaulted? Now, you might bring up the uh, difference between a cameraman, you know, media, and a lines person um, more immediately involved in the match. Well, you know, so it's a, it's a discussion that we have to have, the point being that we shouldn't be viewing this uh, 100% black and white on any side. Because tennis, and this is one of the things I'm going to write about, Sakib, uh, after we get done with this podcast and viewers or listeners will be able to read this, we'll promote it on Twitter. One of the things I'm, the central themes of this U.S. Open is that it reminded us how inconsistently tennis still applies various rules and principles to certain kinds of players. Like, you know, so would... um, would Adrian Manorino have gotten more, uh, you know, leeway or leverage? Or what about Kiki Mladenovic, Benoit Pair, uh, the, the the other players that were involved in these COVID nineteen controversies in New York State, and and depending on uh, the various county uh, officials uh, who had the different guidelines, you know, the, these various layers of political intrigue. It's hard to look at them and say that um, that the principles were applied evenly. We have to remember Guido Pea and Hugo Delian uh, in Cincinnati. You know, they certainly were not treated as fairly as other players. So, so this Djokovic moment, you know, it's not like oh he definitely should have been defaulted, or it's an absolute outrage that he was defaulted. You know, we need to be able to have a mature adult conversation in the middle of that. And, and focus on this larger reality of we have to figure out a way in tennis for, for rules to be applied consistently. Now, you could make, there's always a distinction. You know, there's always a, a, a nuance that puts a certain rule in a different light. For example, Serena Williams and Carlos Ramos two years ago. You know, you, you could say that Ramos applied the rule, but let's, let's allow for the difference between an umpire and, a, and a, an athlete having an argument versus a ball hitting a lineswoman. Now, I'm not saying that Serena or Djokovic was more correct or more worthy of being penalized. Not, that's not the focus here. The point is that an argument versus a ball hitting something specific, those are two different fields of judgment. How you argue something with another human being and whether a ball hits or misses a specific person, those are different judgments. A ball hitting a person, that's a sight judgment. An argument is a judgment of temperament. Now, you can make a reasonable point that 
matters of temperament need to be policed the same way as matters of sight, a ball hitting a person or missing a person. You can make that argument. You can make it reasonably. But we just need to step back and realize these are different kinds of rules. And so when we get to the, the larger picture in tennis, we need to figure out not only if we can you know, apply the rules consistently to all athletes in all circumstances, but we also need to figure out whether different kinds, different subcategories of rules merit the same kind of application. So we could either just have a firefight about Djokovic, or we could have the nuanced, patient, layered, not very easy discussion that that we the sport really needs to have. Yeah, I mean it's uh, it's definitely been the talk of the town since it happened, and a lot of folks who are not again, who I don't want to use the word casual tennis fans, but who follow other sports and tennis is not their main uh, sport of interest, have spoken about it, and that's a discussion that hasn't really gone away. So. Yeah, my my only thing is, again, uh, some of my friends asked me and I said, maybe the discretion could have been used in this instance. We are talking about Novak. Had the ball hit the lineswoman maybe on a shoelace or shoe or she wasn't in some sort of pain. I'm sure the tournament, it was not an easy decision to let go of the favorite. But I guess the moment she the ball hit her and she was in pain, I think that's what I've seen. Uh, people who know the rule and say that's where I guess the discretion was not used. But... Uh, but anyway, yeah, I'm sure uh, you know you'll write about it, and you can probably have a more detailed view on this. And let's move the conversation. We have 20 minutes left uh, as we are timing this podcast, and let's talk about Naomi Osaka. Uh, three hardcore majors already, and I think we talked about it. I think with the Mert or someone on this podcast, if I'm not mistaken, or maybe Skip, uh, is she a double-digit major winner? I mean, things change. I mean, last year it was Bianca Andreescu joining the conversation. This year, Osaka came here as a favorite. Uh, of course, you know she she took a big stand in, uh, in the week prior uh, for the for the Black Lives Matter uh, uh, movement. But then, if you just stick to tennis, I mean, she came, she saw, she delivered. So uh, after a break of COVID, I mean, she yeah, she she had some she, she had some unreal momentum. Uh, did you expect her to come and, you know, be in both finals and win the biggest trophy? Well, you know, I didn't know what to expect uh, really from anything or anyone other than Djokovic. I mean, I thought Djokovic winning the U.S. Open was like the one really solid prediction I could make uh, when, you know, when, when uh, tennis returned and everyone came to New York. That was the one thing I was confident about. Uh, the women's tournament had no idea what was going to happen, especially with six of the top 10 not playing. Um, you know, it was just, it was just uh, up in the air. And so it was very impressive to see how Osaka carried herself. I mean, you know, so when we consider how abnormal these circumstances were, you know, the tours had roughly half a year uh, to just do practicing in private and to perhaps do some physical training to rethink um, their approach, uh, to mentally refresh and regather. And so I think the instructive point really is that Osaka used this time to mentally regather herself. Now, obviously, um, when she lost at the 2019 U.S. Open to Belinda Bencic, it was because of a physical injury. But nevertheless, I think it's very clear that, that Osaka used this off time 
to mentally refresh herself and uh and 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 she gained a kind of perspective that worked for her i mean she was very calm very poised i mean we've seen her have enormous composure in other really big situations i mean she won her first two major finals she handled the the emotional tumult uh, around serena in front of a packed ash stadium two years ago she lost the second set to Petra Kvitova in the 2019 Australian Open final and then was able to regroup in a third, a third set. And then in this case, in a very different scenario, you know, she just got blitzed by an informed Victoria Azarenka on the first set. She wasn't rattled. You know, she she I mean, she got down a break in the second set, but, you know, she just played the next point and steadily worked her way back. So th- th- this was a tournament by a player who we know how phenomenally well she can hit the ball. I mean, just an amazing ball striker. And that semifinal against Jennifer Brady was just exceptional hitting, Uh, just amazing hitting from start to finish, Uh, as good a match as you could possibly hope to see. And, uh, And Osaka, you know, waited for her chance to finally get a break point in the third set of that Brady semifinal, cashed it in, uh, so that that was the mark of not just a great player, but a great player who was mentally refreshed and who used her off time well and was just ready to focus on tennis, everything the moment required uh, when she came back. And really, uh, as Arenka, Brady, and even Serena, uh, I think they all really fit into that profile. I think the nuance with Serena is that you know, she faded in the third set against Sakari in, in the Cincinnati New York tournament. And so, so Serena needed a little more time to adjust to tennis without crowds. But boy, for Brady and then Azarenka a little more and then Osaka most of all, all three of those players clearly used their downtime during the pandemic to get a new outlook and to really develop a lot of inner calm uh, in intense moments, and 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 that 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 showed through the way they played tennis uh, throughout the fortnight in New York. Yeah, I mean the last uh, the nine sets in the ladies' draw, I mean were exceptional, and that's again the shortcoming, you know, why team and Zverev's you know emotional uh, issues handling you know the biggest prize of their career. I think that's why those comparisons are pale for the men. But I think uh, the women really, the, the draw opened, not opened up, I think, as promised. It got better. And uh, there was also Shelby Rogers who had a good tournament. Uh, and there were a lot of good stories. But let's talk about Vika Azarenka. You know, what, six or seven years removed from her last major final. And uh, she's taking the inform player. And she made Osaka look the second best player for a, for a good amount of the first set. You know, Osaka was heavily favored at least in my books. But as Azarenka, I think the movement and the ground strokes were exceptional. So you think uh, too much tennis caught up with Azarenka or it's uh, or Osaka just won the match and Azarenka was still, she still had enough in the tank? Well, I think Osaka, you know, I mean, first off, let's, we'll, I'm going to get to Osaka, but I first I want to go back to uh, Serena for a bit. And that is that, you know, Serena got wiped out uh, in the first set uh, by uh, both Sloane Stevens and Svetlana Peronkova uh, at this tournament. And how many times have we seen Serena Williams get dusted in her first set? She's moving slowly. 
shots are misfiring, nothing's working, and, you know, it just seems like it's not going to be her day. But she then gets into that survival mode, kind of how Dominic Keane did when he fell down uh, two sets uh, to Zverev, and also really how Zverev did when he fell down two sets behind Karina Busta in the semifinal. You know, you get behind, it, you realize that you're close to, to losing the match. The, 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 the philosophy, or if not the philosophy, the priority system changes, and you focus more on just, hey, I'm just going to try to do what I can to survive. I'm going to hit the extra ball if I need to. You know, I'm gonna just going to stay on task. And kind of that stuff about the narrative or the pressure or the stakes, it fades away, and you get into that zone where you're just focusing on doing what you have to do to play each point. And so Serena reeled in Sloan Stevens in the third round, Parankova in the quarters after a terrible first set in each of those matches. We've seen Serena do that for two decades. So with that in mind, you know, Osaka in that final, she did what Serena's done so many times for 20 years, and that is you weather the storm in the first set, you stand there, and, and you, instead of feeling helpless, you just do what you can to survive. You do what you can to work your way back into the match, and you look for that one spark, that turning point. And the turning point was when Azarenka had game point on her serve for three love in the second set. Osaka was able to dig out of that a lot like she did against uh, Shea Su Wei in the third round of the 2019 Australian Open. She was down uh, a break, a set and a break. And she was able to get out of a, a major hole. And as soon as she did, she's able to use that spark to completely change the conversation and the context of a match. She wins it. And, you know, she beat Shea, uh, she beat Shea Su Wei that day, uh, one and a half years ago. And uh, and uh, you know, Osaka was able to do the same thing against Azarenka. I mean, it's just it's just an example of a champion weathering the storm, being patient being mentally focused, and eventually figuring things out. It's not really about Azarenka faltering. It was much more about Osaka, a great champion, rising up and taking taking the match away from a very good opponent. Yeah, that, that's how I saw it too. But again, I did wonder, uh, because I haven't really noticed the kind of tennis Vika Azarenka was playing uh, before COVID, when here she is, uh, you know, playing two back-to-back finals. Of course, she's the same venue, but still, there was a lot of tennis. And she seemed fresh, but you're right. I think Osaka found her way uh, in the end and uh, added, you know, her second U.S. Open uh, crown to, you know, now her tally of three majors. Uh, Jenny Brady uh, has to be mentioned in this uh, podcast. She's part of that awesome match that you mentioned. And anyone who doesn't really know much about her game and listens to the podcast, this is not new. I mean... Not your usual circumstances, but uh, what's has been her upside? And again, I know you you say this is, this is not the normal tournament, but uh, uh, sum up her game. And uh, if this was a normal U.S. Open, you think this was still a surprise run? I mean, how, how do you even you know capture what she achieved in in this fortnight? Well, first off. Um, when we, when Mert Ertunga and I did our Australian Open preview podcast back in January, Mert said that Jen Brady has one of the higher tennis IQs on the WTA tour. And she had been collecting a few really solid wins uh, in the early part of the season before the pandemic hit. So, I mean, this was, this did not come out of nowhere. I mean, now, I would not have 
predicted Brady to make the semis, but it, this was not one of those. Wow, there was no basis for for it happening. Like you know, there was no prior prior evidence uh, to imagine she could do this. No, actually, there was evidence. I mean, sh- this was a player definitely on the rise, and it's it's you know it's it's impressive and it's an an enormous feat for Brady to get this far in her career. But there were building blocks. You know, there were there were clear indications that this was a career that was getting better. And, and, you know, I remember three years ago, she played that very shaky first round match against Kiki Mladenovic at Roland Garros. And remember, this, in 2017, Mladenovic was considered a dark horse to potentially win the tournament. And she made the quarterfinals that year uh, before losing, I think it was to Tamea Baczynski. Um, but, um, you know, so Mladenovic was a contender in 2017. And Jen Brady was serving for the match uh, at least once, if not twice, in the first round in Paris. And a lot like Sasha Zverev serving for the match against team, you know, Brady did not handle things well when trying to close out Mladenovic. But she, you know, she had Mladenovic on the ropes. So like even three years ago, I was aware that, you know, Brady could play well against good players. And, you know, Mladenovic is good on clay. So Brady was doing well on Mladenovic's preferred surface. So there was obviously some talent there. But then more recently, Sakib, um, there's been a progression in Brady's game where she plays better defense, and that comes from her improved fitness. So improved fitness, better defense, which leads to more patience in points. You don't pull the trigger early. You're able to make better uh, high percentage decisions when you know that you're physically ready to stay in a point so it's just it's been a case of hard work leading to improved fitness, leading to more patience, leading to increased trust in her game, and that's just made Brady a much more well-rounded player. So I mean, going to the backhand side, uh, going to you know all, all corners of the court, um, being able to handle pressure better, it's all of a piece. The work, the fitness, the defense supplementing what is a very, very powerful forehand, which, you know, she's had uh, the whole way. Now she has a much more complete game, many more resources to call upon. So, you know, I I think that she has a very good chance of sticking around in the top tier of women's tennis. Or if if you want to make a distinction, maybe not the top four or five, but certainly right in that very upper second tier uh, of the sport. I think that, you know, more major semifinals, could certainly lie ahead in her future. All right, so we're closing up on the hour, as we decided. So let's wrap this up. Uh, this is going back to our Twitter DMs with Mert and Andrew. And uh, I want to put you here on the spot. And does this tournament still has an asterisk, according to you? Okay, so you asked me, so I need to give an yeah. answer. <laughs> uh, I, I think I think the women the women's tournament, you know, the women's tournament doesn't have an asterisk because women's tennis has been very volatile and unpredictable. Now that doesn't mean bad because the women played a great tournament. This was a fabulous women's tournament with wonderful box office A plus semifinals and, and and a final. So the women, you know, deserve very high marks, but it remains that. From one tournament to another, we're still not at a point where the same players are playing in semis and finals. Uh, you could kind of make a slight exception for Serena. You know, when there's a hard court 
uh, or Wimbledon semifinal. Serena's usually there, but she's not there in uh, uh, Australia or especially not Roland Garros. And Osaka's there on hard court, but she's not there at Roland Garros or Wimbledon. So we're still not at a point where like there's a regular final four or, or final eight across all the surfaces. So it was unpredictable going in. It's un- it was unpredictable, you know, looking back. So the women's tournament, there's not really a change in the calculus. But as for the men, you know, so I know that Andrew, and I respect his view, you know, he's no asterisk, period. Well, I'm not as much of an absolutist as Andrew is on that point. I think that if you're going to look at a tournament where two of the big three weren't even playing, one because of COVID worries, or, or you know, if not COVID worries, at least, you know, trying to make sure to be prepared for Roland Garros, that being Rafa. Then another one was injured, Federer. And then Djokovic doesn't lose because of injury. Uh, he doesn't lose because, you know, the other guy was better. He loses because uh, of an incident, an episode. And again, we can all debate whether it was appropriate or not. But nevertheless, it, he didn't lose because of things specifically related to tennis. He lost because of uh, a, 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 an incident not related to the plane of an actual point. And so for me, uh, that certainly requires an asterisk. I think you, you do, that if you're, if you're never going to have an asterisk for anything, okay, you know, that, that can be a, a, a perfectly reasonable principle or rule. But I think that, you know, if there are certain extraordinary circumstances, uh, that that is precisely why you have an asterisk. And I would say that everything involved in this tournament, yeah, that's exactly what an asterisk uh, applies to. Now, all of this having been said, does this mean that Dominic Team's tournament doesn't count? No. I, I just think that the circumstances are particularly unique. And so, like, you know, was this the end of the big three's dominance? Well, two of them didn't show up, and one was defaulted for a matter not related to the actual playing of a match. So you can't really make that kind of statement, and that's kind of why an asterisk uh, is, is fitting. But in the same breath, hey, Dominic Team, he doesn't have to apologize to anyone. He should not care about what anyone thinks, certainly not a, 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 an obscure tennis analyst such as Matt Zemek. He has his trophy. He should always treasure it. He's going to remember, interestingly enough, Sakib, that even though the big three wasn't there at the end, this match was incredibly difficult for him. He's going to remember this and how difficult it was 50 years from now. And the difficulty of the experience is going to make the remembrance of this so satisfying for him. And you know what? He should feel that satisfaction. He should feel that pride. He should feel that giddiness over finally uh, reaching the mountaintop of his profession. So, yes, there's an asterisk for the men. But in the same breath, that doesn't take away anything from Dominic Team. Now, some might say, well, Matt, if you're placing an asterisk, you are taking it away. But, well, you know, that's a fair point. But the only person for whom it really matters is Dominic Team, not me. So I might take it away from him, but I don't want it to be taken away from him. And I want Dominic Team to be fully happy and fully proud of what he accomplished. On that note, I think we can wrap up the show. If you disagree with Matt, uh, which I do, (laughs) uh, so drop a line on Twitter and uh, we'll be back with another episode in a week's time. Uh, Thank you everyone for listening and hopefully 
we have a few more weeks where we'll be talking a lot of tennis coming up.